Hello, adventure and fantasy fans, and welcome to Elijah Menchaca's They Met in a Tavern. My name is Gabe, and this is Camcat Unwrapped. I'll be introducing you to each episode of Elijah Menchaca's They Met in a Tavern a fantastical adventure featuring a band of heroes dragged out of retirement by a new threat. But seeing this group of misfits come together to fight a common enemy isn't the only thing I love about this book. No. They Met in a Tavern is one of those unputdownable books that inspires your bravery as it launches you into a daydream where adventure is around every corner. It's a book to live it. If you love this story, Keep your ears open later in this episode for information on how to win a copy of the full audiobook for free. Meet the Starbreakers. Phoenix, the Inventor. Brass, the Duelist. Snow, the Assassin. Church, the Priest. And Angel, the Warrior. Together, this team formed the greatest group of glint chasers the kingdom had ever seen, until tragedy tore them apart. Now, they're scattered to the wind trying to distance themselves from their former lives. But when new enemies come for them, they'll have to reunite and remember how to work together before they lose everything. Of course, if it were easy to sort out old grievances, they would have done it a long time ago. So order another round, settle in, and listen to the tale of Fractured Family, Unfinished Business, and the Five Cell Swords at its center. Camcat Publishing presents They Met in a Tavern by Elijah Menchaca Narrated by Chris Shula To my wings Who makes me feel like I can fly 1. The Contract As the crackling fireplace kept away the last chills of the dying winter, the handler made a show of examining a stack of papers in front of the client. He'd already read them, had aides read them, and read the aides' notes on them before this meeting started. He'd kept his job as long as he had by being thorough. But for some reason, clients never believed it, unless they saw him doing it. The handler didn't mind. Showmanship was his favorite part of the job. Well, it would seem everything is in order the handler stated, straightening out the stack of papers. I'm certain we can make all the necessary arrangements to move forward with your contract. Silas shifted uncomfortably in his seat on the other side of the handler's desk. He probably thought he did a good job of hiding it, but the man may as well have been proclaiming his emotions in song. The poor soldier. And even without any heraldry, his posture gave him away as one was almost adorably lost in the unfamiliar territory of criminal enterprise. All the more reason to make him feel at ease with whatever pageantry and pleasantries were necessary. Thank you, Silas said. And you can keep my name out of this? 
All contractors will conduct their business through us, the handler assured with a sweeping wave. Your hands will be clean right up until the targets are handed off to you. Good. There is one minor problem I'd like to address now, the handler said. What? There are a few names on the list you provided. The handler leafed through the papers until he found the one in question and plucked it from the stack. With a dry quill, he pointed to the offending names. These five here. I would advise you to double the reward for each of them. The client frowned, and the handler knew he felt like he was being conned. The handler took no offense. It was only natural for someone of the client's background to distrust someone like the handler. They were from opposing worlds. And, even if they weren't, it was an obscene amount of money they were discussing. Why? I advise this purely out of a desire to ensure satisfactory results, the handler said. Simply put, if you want to capture the Starbreakers, you're going to need the best. And the best won't bite for what you're offering. Silas's frown deepened as he stared at the names. The handler waited patiently for him to see sense. I thought they were failures. The handler chuckled softly. It wasn't an inaccurate assessment, but it wasn't the full picture either. He wondered where Silas must have been from, to not understand who they were dealing with. Or maybe he was younger than he looked. The Starbreakers toppled the Tower of the Hegemony when they were children. They've slain things from other worlds and found some of the old world's greatest marvels. The handler said matter-of-factly, even now, anything less than the very best won't be enough to touch them. Silas continued to stare at the list and the five offending names. Brass, Phoenix, Snow, Church, Angel. Securing other names from the list would be beneficial, but these five could be the key to everything. You have a deal. Two. Brass. Brass woke up lying naked on the floor of what was either an expensive inn or a pretentious brothel. His first thought was that the place had incredibly lush carpeting in its rooms. His second thought was that his head hurt. A lot. But that was nothing new. And, if he could find his things, easily fixable. He just had to wait for the room to stop spinning. Slowly, fighting his hangover's protests, he sat up and blinked. Thick curtains pulled shut over the windows were blocking the early morning sun, leaving the room dimly lit. There was an excess of red velvet in the room's decor, which told him most of what he needed to know about where he was, and what he'd gotten up to last night. The bed, which he seemed to have missed by a few feet last night, was occupied by a woman with smooth caramel skin and flowing dark hair that spread out over the sheets and obscured her face. Somewhere, deep in the back of his mind, fighting to be heard over a stabbing pain in his temples, 
Alarm bells were going off. He gingerly searched for her wrist under the sheets. When he found it and felt the pulse, what little concern he had evaporated, and he returned to, to looking for his things. Finding them was easier said than done. Besides, the bedroom suite had a bathroom, a kitchenette, and a living room, and absolutely all of it was a mess. Dozens of room service trays were strewn about, stacked with half-eaten plates of cold food and empty bottles. That wasn't even touching the unconscious strangers scattered in every room with about as much dignity as Brass had woken up with. Actually, slightly more, given that most of them seemed to have managed to collapse onto a piece of furniture instead of the floor. There were six people in the suite, and Brass had absolutely no memory of meeting any of them. Brass wouldn't have had a problem with that, except their clothes thrown all over the suite made it harder to find his. It took about ten minutes of stumbling and searching before Brass finally spotted his pants and belt in the kitchenette, draped over the back of a chair. He took about two steps forward before he tripped over his own feet and fell face first onto the floor. Oh, oops, he muttered. Rather than repeating the incident, he opted to crawl the rest of the way. From the floor, Brass rummaged through his pockets until he found a small pouch and a book of matches. He made his way to the nightstand, which was the closest flat surface he could find. From the pouch, he took a generous pitch of specially blended herbs, deposited them in a neat pile on the nightstand, and lit a match. The blend burned, releasing blue-gray smoke into Brass's face. The smoke smelled like blueberries and driftwood. Brass breathed it in for a few minutes, feeling his headache evaporate with every breath. He sighed in relief, then sniffed again. The smell had changed. Now it just smelled like burning wood as the smoldering herbs scorched the nightstand. Shit! Brass frantically slapped the still-burning herbs until the flames were out, stinging his hands in the process. As the herbs finished their work, the last traces of distracting pain receded from his skull, paving the way for a sudden rush of stark clarity to take its place. Probably shouldn't have done that on the table. Feeling significantly better, Brass grabbed his pants off the chair and tugged them up to his waist. He found his vest shortly after and slipped that on as well. But he could only find one of his boots. That's irritating. Single boot in hand, Brass toured the living room again with freshly sobered senses. Most of the men and women there wore makeup that gave them away as escorts or dancers and the skimpy clothing Brass found lying around backed up that guess. But one woman didn't fit the look at all. Her haircut was too sensible, and out of everyone in the room, she was the only one still wearing anything, even if it was just her underwear and a blanket. Brass made a mental note to take another crack at finding a blend that could help with memory blackouts. He went back to the bedroom. Without a splitting hangover sucking up his attention span, Something about the woman he'd found when he first woke up was making him uneasy. Trying not to wake her up, Brass brushed some of her hair out of the way so he could get a better look at her face. In the bed was none other than Diane Respina, one of the princesses of the city of Orm. On a hunch, 
Brass peered from the bedroom to take another look at the other woman who didn't fit the bill of an escort, and tried to picture her holding a tablet and quill. It was easy to do. He still wasn't entirely sure what had happened, but he was fairly certain he was going to be in very big trouble soon. Foreign princesses were pretty high up on the list of things he wasn't supposed to sleep with. As if to punctuate that thought, a knock came from the door. Who is it? Brass asked, hurriedly tucking the princess in. Brass? A gruff voice came from the other side of the door. The alarm bells came back when he heard his name. Someone knew he was here, which meant they probably knew who else was here. Ah, uh, one second, Brass called out, rounding up spare blankets and towels from the floor as he drafted a perfectly innocent explanation for the scene his visitors were about to walk in on. He ran around the room, throwing the towels and blankets to cover up the escorts, all the while trying to keep an eye out for his other boot. There was a second, a more impatient knock at the door. Be with you in a moment, Brass yelled back. The search for his boot was getting him nowhere, so he gave up on it and made a beeline for the door just as the person on the other side knocked again. Brass could practically hear how many seconds of patience his caller had left. He combed his hands through his hair, threw his single boot off to the side, and opened the door. How can I help you? he asked with a smile. Brass was expecting Eondran royal guards, here to collect the princess. Dark hair, steel rapiers, colorful robes, and engraved breastplates. The two men waiting outside were not that. Their skin was tanned from time spent in the sun, but still unmistakably white. They wore rough traveler's cloaks over piecemeal leathers. Instead of rapiers, they were holding short swords. These men were not here for the princess. Sorry, wrong room, Brass apologized, slamming the door in their faces while they were still staring at him. Before he could reach the bolt to lock the door, it exploded open, and both men charged in. Brass threw himself just out of reach of the men's first swings and hit the floor. Without thinking, he rolled away until he collided with a chair, which he immediately hurled at the intruders to buy time. Brass sprang to his feet just as one of them got closer. Luckily, their swordplay was pathetic. Unarmed, Brass swatted aside the first stab that came his way, and as the second guy came in, Brass grabbed his offending wrist and redirected his attack into his friend's arm. The attacker snarled. Watch it! Yeah, Brass agreed, pointing to the guy he had used as a weapon. Watch it, Greg. What? One of the men asked. Well, Brass explained as he dodged another stab from one of the intruders. You gentlemen neglected to introduce yourselves, even though you know my name. So, until you learn your manners, Brass warned, pointing at the two men. You're Greg, and you're Wallace. Wallace circled around, trying to get behind him. At the same time, Greg lunged at him again. Brass twisted on his heel and in one motion dodged the stab while kicking the man behind him in the stomach. Shut up, Greg roared, charging again. Brass sidestepped his attack and jabbed Greg in the eyes with his fingers. While he was distracted, Brass took his sword. With a burst of speed and a quick turn to the side, he jammed the stolen weapon into Wallace's shoulder. Just as quickly, he pulled the blade free and opened the man's throat. 
one down. Greg tackled them to the ground, and Brass lost the sword. The two of them struggled, with Greg getting solid hits in as they tumbled across the floor. Their roll came to a stop near the door. Brass on the ground, Greg's hands around his neck. Bastard, Greg spat, getting blood on Brass's face. You're gonna pay for that! Out of the corner of his eye, lying on the floor underneath a small end table, Brass spotted his boot. He was confused, thinking he'd thrown it somewhere else, until he realized it was the one he'd been looking for all morning. Brass tried to laugh, but all that came out was a strangled gargle. Save your breath for the devils, you sack of shit, Greg said, squeezing harder. Brass strained every muscle in his throat as he reached for his boot. Feeling on the cusp of passing out, he managed to croak. What's your shoe size? Feeling along the heel of his boot, Brass found the small concealed button and pressed it, deploying a blade from the toe end. He grabbed the boot and jammed it into the side of Greg's head. The tension around Brass's neck disappeared, and Greg collapsed. Brass coughed and wheezed underneath the man's bulk before shoving him off. He staggered to his feet as stillness took the room. The only sounds were occasional mutters from the escorts as they blissfully slept on, too deep in their drug and drink-induced morning comas to have even noticed the racket. No, no, I'm fine. Don't get up on my account. Hearing the sound of a door creaking, Brass whirled around, still brandishing his boot. Princess Diane stood in the bedroom doorway, clutching a sheet around herself, a look of utter horror on her face. Brass looked around the room, at the two bodies, and at the blood that was soaking into the carpet. Well, good morning, Brass greeted her breathlessly. Would you like to get breakfast? The princess screamed. Three, old habits. Armin walked the streets of the Pale, grateful that not too many people were out this early in the morning. It had been a long time since he'd come to this part of Olwen, and his rumpled old coat made him stick out enough on its own without him also looking like a lost tourist. The Pale was the playground of the city's richest citizens, full of high-end clubs and restaurants that generally didn't see real business until later in the day. His memory wasn't the problem. His mental map was out of date. There was a music hall where the theater used to be. Nathan's bakery was completely gone. And somebody had the brilliant idea to rename some of the streets. Strangest to him was the new tenant housing building that looked like it had been converted from an old hotel. People didn't live in the Pale, except for a few business owners with rooms above their establishments. Well, not the last time he'd been here, anyway. Finally, he found his way to the place he was looking for. The Crimson Lilac was a large three-story inn painted dark brown with red accents. On a second-story dining balcony, a few guests were enjoying a light breakfast. It was a higher-end establishment with a reputation for expanded hospitality, exactly the sort of place he would have expected to find brass. He stepped through the front doors and was greeted by an extravagant interior. Expensive woodwork, fine paintings, bright red carpet. 
The lobby was a simple space, mostly built to exhibit art and sculptures. But there was a front desk and an inviting lounge visible just a room over that was currently almost empty. Like the rest of the pale, it was the kind of place that didn't really come alive until the sun went down. The woman at the front desk was absorbed in a book and didn't greet him. Armin approached her. Excuse me? She looked up, quickly closing her book as she straightened her posture, brightened her eyes, and flashed a wide, apologetic smile. He always had a hard time telling real smiles from the professional ones. How can I help you? I'm looking for someone who might have stayed here last night, Armin explained. A man named Brass. I'm afraid I can't give out guest information. Armin had expected the rebuttal, but he hadn't expected the delivery. The woman said it like a question. She sounded surprised. No, not surprised. Uh, confused, maybe. If you'd like, I can uh, take a message for him. When or if he comes here. The woman blinked, reading from a mental script as her mind worked. Is this brass someone important? Not exactly. Not in the way most people were important, anyway. Armin was sure now that brass was somewhere in this place. It was just a matter of figuring out where. He could try to convince the woman to tell him, but he wasn't really sure how. Or he could try getting a look at the hotel's books somehow. That could get complicated, but it would involve less talking. He missed having an invisibility belt. He realized he was overthinking the issue, just as a piercing scream from upstairs interrupted his thoughts. I think that's him. The woman's disapproval of him going up the stairs was written on her face, but she didn't say anything out loud. On the way up, he tried to prepare himself. It had been years since he'd seen Brass, and the last time they'd spoken, things had ended... Uh, poorly. He told himself he could handle this. He wasn't trying to make amends or hold a conversation. It was just a job. He got lucky when he reached the top of the stairs. There was only one room along the hall with its door open. Armin cautiously made his way to it. Brass? He peeked in. He didn't see anyone, but there were signs of a struggle. Furniture overturned, objects scattered. He was starting to get worried. Brass, you in here? Armin took another step and a sword point was at his throat. It was a thin, shining rapier with an ornately swept handle. Wielding it was a wiry man with short, dark curls, finely groomed facial hair, and brown eyes that were accented with just a hint of eyeliner. He was wearing pants, an open vest, and nothing else, exposing a chest of scars and more than a few tattoos. Brass? Brass blinked, smiled, and sheathed his rapier. Phoenix, seven hells, what are you doing here? Brass dragged Armin into a hug, which Armin stiffly accepted without returning. He hadn't known exactly what to expect, but it hadn't been this. It was like their last meeting, in the last seven years, had never happened. He gave it a second before gently pushing Brass off of him. 
The Castellan called in a favor, Armin explained. Focus on the job. Apparently, an Eandrian princess went missing last week, and you know where she is. Oh, Brass said, disappointed. Yeah, she's over there. Armin followed Brass's gesture into the next room. There was the princess, wearing a robe, clutching a cup of coffee, staring at a pair of dead bodies on the living room floor. Son of a... Purple Brass, what did you do? Okay, I know this looks bad, but it's really not, Brass defended. These two guys... Wait a minute. Son of a... Purple? Armin blinked, trying to think of the simplest way to explain himself. Uh, I'm trying to watch my language, so I've been using substitutes. Why? There was this whole thing with my parents about how kids are sponges or something, Armin said. I'm trying to make sure one of my daughter's first words isn't an expletive. You have a daughter now? Oh, saints. He hadn't meant to tell Brass that or anything about himself. Too late now. Ah, uh, yeah. Seven months. Phoenix! Congratulations! Brass pulled Armin in for another hug, tighter this time. Once again, Armin mostly stood there, though this time he tried to half-heartedly return the embrace with one arm, at least until it went on for too long. Brass. Hmm? What happened here? Oh, right, uh, them. Brass turned his attention to Greg and Wallace. Weirdest thing, they came knocking on the door asking for me. I answered, and then they barged in and tried to kill me. And well, you know how that goes. What was the scream? Brass pointed back at the princess, who was now staring at the two of them, and Armin remembered the whole reason he was here. He cleared his throat. Apologies for all of this, Princess Respina, Armin said in Eandrin. My name is Armin Mashar. The university and the Castellan asked me to bring you back to school. As soon as she heard her native tongue, the princess fixated on Armin. What he said almost didn't matter. Just hearing it lent him an air of familiarity and safety she was desperate for. In Eandrin, she asked, Those men, who are they? What's going on? The authorities will handle this. Please go get your things. The princess hesitated, still distracted by the bodies. She slowly nodded and left the room, holding her head. Armin recognized the signs of a hangover. Brass cocked his head. Well, you would have been useful when I was trying to make conversation. As soon as the princess was out of the room, Armin glared daggers at Brass who looked offended. What? You took a foreign dignitary's daughter to a sex hotel, got her drunk, and then killed two people in front of her. I didn't do it in front of her, I think. She was just sort of there once it was over. I'm fine, by the way, thank you for asking. A mouse-like voice interrupted them, this time speaking in Corson. Hello? Is someone there? Another woman walked into the room wearing a dazed expression and a shirt too large to be hers while clutching a blanket around her. Her staff or two? That wasn't my call. She wouldn't leave her side. The woman peered past them and shrieked, 
are those? I'm with the city watch, Armin interrupted. You and the princess are leaving. Go get your things. The woman seemed a little confused and shaken, but she quickly nodded and walked away in a hurry. The sound of her and the princess talking in panicked whispers filtered in from the next room. Armin dragged his hand over his face. This is a mess, Brass. I think I've made worse. That doesn't make this okay. Sooner or later, security would arrive. Then it would be the watch's turn, and all this would get back to the Castellan, who would expect answers. Armin figured he might as well get them while he was here. Who were these guys? Armin asked. I don't know, Brass said. Forgot to introduce themselves before they started stabbing. Killers today, no manners. Armin ignored Brass, crouching down to look at the bodies. It would be a few minutes before the princess and her attaché would be ready to leave, and he was curious. They were men used to lean living by the look of them, dressed for a fight. On a hunch, he removed the bracer off one to get a look at his forearm. As expected, there was a tattoo. It was a pair of crossed pikes, circled and entwined by chains. Freelancers. Not a company I recognize, though. A cross between mercenaries and treasure hunters, freelancers roam the world, braving its dangers for a chance at fortune and glory. They almost always worked in groups, and more often than not, those groups dissolved or got killed long before they ever made anything of themselves. And now, two more had learned just how common that fate was. Armin stood up. Looks like you pissed someone off enough for them to hire glint chasers over it. Not particularly good ones, either, Brass lamented. I think I'm insulted. Another man walked into the room. He was tall, easily ahead above Armin and Brass, with gray skin and pointed ears, but no tusks, and human eyes. A half-orc. He had his thumbs hooked in his belt and a questioning scowl. Armin recognized security when he saw it. The princess and her attendant emerged from the other room, fully clothed. I hope you get this sorted out, Armin offered to Brass. I'm gonna go. What? Just like that you're gonna leave me? Brass asked. Someone wants me dead, and I don't know who. It's a big mystery. That's like your thing. No. Come on, we haven't seen each other in years. Help me out with this, Brass pleaded. It'll be just like old times. That is the problem, Armin said. I don't do this anymore, Brass. Oh, come on, you've got something better to do? Yes, it's called an actual life, Armin said. I have a family, Brass. So what? I'm just supposed to figure this out on my own? Yes, Armin stressed, before softening. I'm sorry. Armin motioned for the princess and her attendant to follow him. The half-orc moved to stand in his way. I'm working for the Castellan to get these women home safely, Armin said. It's really not worth the trouble trying to get in the way of that. Besides, I just got here. You want to know what's going on, talk to him. Brass stared at Armin, jaw slack. He mouthed the words, You bastard. Armin ignored him. The half-orc thought it over and stepped out of Armin's way. Thank you. Armin let the princess and her attendant go first so he could say goodbye to Brass. 
good luck with whatever this is. Phoenix, you're an asshole, Brass retorted, as the half-orc eyed him down. Armin just shrugged and walked out the door. I hope your kid's first word is can't. Four, the Castellan. The carriage ride across town was a quiet one. The princess and her attendant said nothing and avoided eye contact with Armin. He was a man of deep brown complexion, with near black hair and a closely shorn, slightly ragged beard. He was modestly built, but his eyes and mouth easily settled into a frown, as if it was the expression his face was the most comfortable making. Even still, the women stole glances at him, and Armin recognized the look in their eyes. It was a very particular breed of trust, the kind people only gave when they were scared and needed someone to latch on to. After what they'd seen this morning, that look didn't surprise Armin. In lieu of conversation, Armin watched the city go by on the cart ride. It wasn't just the pale. Most of Olwen was foreign to him now. The streets were more crowded. Distinct fashion trends stood out against each other as natives and immigrants rubbed shoulders with one another. Even without the differences in clothing, it was easy to tell the natives from the newcomers. Locals couldn't stop staring at new arrivals, but the foreigners were just trying to keep their heads down. When Armin and the women arrived at the Castellan's keep, things grew loud as guards hounded them with questions. They then were swept in through the gates in a hurry once the guards realized who Diane was. Lest anyone on the streets recognized the princess and swarmed the keep. A member of the guard ran to get the Castellan, while a member of the city watch Armin knew came to escort the princess. Caitlin? Orman! I heard Elizabeth talk to the leave in the house, Caitlin said. A relieved smile spread across her face as she looked the princess over. Thanks for helping out with this. I owed Armin a favor, Armin said. He realized that probably wasn't an appropriate response, then amended. I mean, you're welcome. Caitlin ordered a few men to break off and escort the princess away, and Armin noticed new livery of crossed swords decorating Caitlin's left arm instead of the single sword she'd had the last time he saw her. She'd gotten a promotion. He smiled, but thought better of saying anything. No need to hold her up while she had a job to do. Her Corson's a little choppy, Armin warned her. Probably best to find someone who speaks Eandrin. Right, she said hesitantly. No one on the watch speaks Eandrin. Oh. Without a solution to offer her, Armin opted to give a curt apologetic nod and take his leave before anyone could ask for his help. The Castellan would be expecting a debrief from him. When Armin got to the Castellan's office, he did his best to give Harbin a quick summary of things. He explained how he found Brass, where they were, mentioned the men who attacked. The Castellan took it about as well as could be expected. Harbin was about fifteen years Armin's senior, and he'd been the king's man in Olwen since before Armin had ever set foot in the city. His hairline was receding, and he was putting on weight, but he still went out of his way to maintain a neat shave and a clean presentation. He was never a particularly reserved man, especially when he was getting bad news. Right now, his round face was bright red.
The lilac? I'm afraid so. Of fucking course they were there, he muttered. I'll have a cleric give them a once-over before we get them back to the university. Last thing I need is a foreign princess with a social disease. Armin agreed. Probably a good call. I'll get someone out to the pale to look into those men as well. But there's not going to be much to find. Always manage to clean things up before we get out there, Harbin mused. Brass can probably handle himself, if it's just going to be more trouble than it's worth. I don't give a glint about him. He can die in a pit, and I'll toast to the day he does. I care that someone thinks they can put a hit on a man in my city. Harbin considered what he just said and amended. Ah, sorry. I know he was your friend. You don't have to apologize, Armin said. Brass is brass. Of all the places he could have turned up, Arben grunted. He was still fuming, but decided that was enough anger to expend on this. He had to save some energy for whatever else that they had in store for him. Well, brought you in to do a job, and you did it. Arben started shifting through his keys, but Armin held up a hand. I don't need money, Harbin. This was just a favor. Harbin stopped just as he seemed to find the right key. Right. Guess you wouldn't then. Well, I'll walk you out. The two of them walked through the keep's halls toward the exit. The place had started its life as a fort, guarding a smattering of houses, and had been built up, one brick and beam at a time. Very little had actually been torn down in all that time just repurposed. The walls were left as a monument to the building's history, changing subtly in color or composition from one hall to the next. Along the way, they passed the training yard, where a few squads were going through crossbow drills. Archers are looking good, Armin noted. They know what the lady'll do to them if she comes back from leave and thinks they slipped up, Harbin replied with a smirk. How many more favors do I have from you? Actually, I'm pretty sure this last one made us even. Well, suppose I paid you for this one like it were a job and called in the favor for something else. Armin stopped. You know if I wanted to work for the watch, I would have asked for a job. It's not just a normal job. No. You haven't even heard it. Don't need to. Armin resumed walking toward the exit, a bit quicker now. Harbin matched his pace. A week ago, we got word of an explosion going off in the Crest Ward. Blew a hole in a townhouse and set two other places on fire. Brigades did fuck all to put it out. They had to get a cleric to make it rain. Briefly, Harbin wondered which church Harbin had called, but he decided it wasn't worth asking. Instead, he asked, Why me? That townhouse that went up? It's still smoldering. Armin unconsciously slowed his pace. A week later? We figured it's arcane, but that's all any of my people can make of it. I've got a lot of good people. Good heads on their shoulders, but they know fuck all about magic. The king could send a mage, Armin reminded. Sent for one. They're months out, Armin dismissed. Meanwhile, whatever son of a bitch did it is still loose. In my city. Or maybe he died in the blast. I don't know, because no one I've got can tell me what the hell's happened. 
If you think I can. Who else? They came to another stop at the door that would lead outside to the gates. Armin did his best to keep a neutral expression while he mentally sifted through theories. Could have been arcane. Could be chemical. It was always demonism, but in practice, that was almost never the answer. He would know for sure without getting a better look. That had to have been exactly what Harbin was banking on. I'll think it over. Five. Elizabeth. While Armin technically lived in Olwen's lands, he didn't live in the city proper, as the great breadbasket of the kingdom. The countryside surrounding the city was filled with countless farms and the occasional homestead. Acres was one such place, a collection of about two dozen squat houses and sheds with a single inn thrown in to welcome travelers, give people a place to talk, and let locals get out of the house without making the trip all the way into the city. It was a quiet place where people tended not to poke into each other's business without good reason. Armin liked that the most about it. It was still afternoon when Armin made it back from the keep. Most of the people in Acres were still working on their farms, but there were a few people who spotted Armin and waved or said hello. Quiet didn't mean deserted, but he'd learned that living completely alone was unhealthy, even for him. The whole of Acres occupied the slope of a large hill, with Armin's house near the top. It was certainly one of the bigger buildings of the bunch, only really matched by the inn, but it still wasn't much. It technically had two stories, but the second story was only half the size of the first. It certainly didn't look worth the fortune that had been sunk into it. Armin got to the door. Instead of keys, he just grabbed the handle and waited. After a second, he heard the locks click, and he went inside. The savory smell of fresh-baked bread wrapped around him as he shut the door behind him. A smile broke out on his face. Elizabeth was home. He found her seated at her desk in their shared study, croissant in hand, another on a plate, book propped in front of her. She was a petite woman, but with a toned physique. Her chestnut hair was tied back and out of her way. She kept saying she needed to just cut it. Armin greeted her. Those smell good. They are good, Elizabeth confirmed, smiling but not looking up from her book. And they are mine. Really? Even this one? Armin reached for the plate, only for Elizabeth to pull it out of reach, still without looking. Even that one, I didn't put nuts in these, which means they are not for you. Armin feigned a hurt expression. Elizabeth didn't notice. You said you didn't know when you'd be back and to not wait up. So I made food for me, Elizabeth said. If you are hungry, you may feed yourself. She finally looked up from her book at him, and her rosy cheeks brightened as she smiled. Armin felt like a set of weights fell off him. She ran her hand across his face, pulled him close, and gave him a peck on the cheek. Welcome home. How's Robin? Armin asked. Sleeping. Finally, Elizabeth sighed. She shot him a sly look. Looking forward to her father making up for all of the shifts he's missed. Armin laughed. There was no real sense of dread. He liked taking care of Robin. 
mostly. Cleaning up after her was a hell all its own, but the chestnaps more than made up for it. Sorry I missed so many. It's fine. Elizabeth gave Armin a comforting pat. How did the search for brass pan out? Found him and the missing princess, Armin said. It wasn't that hard, but I get why the watch couldn't find him. I only knew where to look because I know him. How is he? Armin was surprised by the question. Well, he hasn't changed at all. So there's that. Still dresses like he sprinted through a closet and threw on whatever he got snagged on. Does he still make those herbs you can burn to cure hangovers? Why, are you planning on getting drunk soon? Unfortunately not, Elizabeth said, smirking. But being prepared never hurt anyone. Who told you that? Armin asked, already knowing the answer. Elizabeth shrugged as her smirk only grew bigger. Some bookworm glint chaser from the coast. Armin rolled his eyes, but the smile didn't leave his face. He wrapped his arms around Elizabeth, and she grabbed his arm with a free hand. How did Harbin take it? Well, when he found out where they'd been, he was, um, thoroughly perturbed, Armin said. But he didn't put a warrant out for Brass's arrest, at least. I think he was just glad to have the whole thing sorted. He was happy with my turnaround. He wasn't pulling double duty with a baby waiting for you to get back. Armin cocked his head. You said you were fine with me going. I was, Elizabeth said, patting his arm. Really, I'm glad you took it. You needed it. Why did I need it? You just did. Armin sighed, accepting this. It actually got him thinking again about Harbin's other job. The explosion in the crest ward. The fire that was still smoldering. Just remembering it racked his brain with questions. Well then, what if I took another one? Hmm? What if I took another job from Harbin? Elizabeth, very gently but very deliberately, lifted Armin's arms off of her and turned her chair so she was facing him. Armin instantly suspected he'd done something wrong, but couldn't read her face well enough to know for sure. Either she was intrigued, or she was upset. What kind of job? she asked. That was encouragement enough to keep talking, even if he still couldn't quite get a read on her. So Armin recounted all the details that Harbin had given him, plus a bit of conjecture on his part. He got so caught up in it, he forgot to ask Elizabeth whether or not she was upset with him for bringing it up in the first place. When he finished, he realized he'd paced to the other side of the room without even noticing. Nervous energy raced along his nerves, fresh from thinking out a problem in a dozen directions at once. It surprised him. He could have sworn he'd felt tired a second ago. Finally remembering his initial worry, he tried to read Elizabeth's face. She wasn't overtly frowning or glaring. He wasn't entirely sure, though, until she asked him a question. What do you think happened? I'm honestly not sure, Armin said. Off the top of my head, there are too many possibilities. I'd have to get an actual look at everything, run it through detection and identification, see what comes up. And even then, she was smiling at him. What? 
Her smile wasn't big, but it was unmistakable. And now Armin was uncertain all over again. But this time, he knew he'd done something right. He just wasn't sure what. Nothing, Elizabeth said. You've just got your thinking look on your face. It's kind of adorable. Armin took the compliment, and it took him a second to remember what they were actually talking about. Uh, so, what do you think? Elizabeth leaned back in her chair, folding her hands. Her thumb traced across her fingers a couple of times before she answered. I think... I haven't seen you this curious about something in a long time, she said. And I think Harbin wouldn't have asked if he didn't need you. So I should do it? I don't know, she said. But I know you want to. Almost reflexively, Armin started to deny it and apologize, but Elizabeth stopped him. It's okay. Her voice carried a softness with it that instantly quieted him. All the energy he'd been feeling settled down at once. And suddenly, she was the only thing in the world. Armin hadn't even understood that he'd been asking for permission more than advice. But Elizabeth had. Of course she had. He missed and misinterpreted signals from people all the time. But Elizabeth heard every breath, watched every movement of the eyes, and seemed to read it all perfectly. What about Robin? he asked. We'll be okay, she assured him. You help Harbin sort that mess out. An infant's cry broke the comfortable silence between the two, and a look of pity crossed Elizabeth's face as she pointed Armin down the hall. After you sort out that. They met in a tavern, Wilbur Zoom, after this short message from the ChemCat team. Hey there, lovers of story. Do you find this book unputdownable? Are you itching to hear how it ends? Would you like to have a copy you can keep forever? This week, CamCat Unwrapped is hosting a giveaway. One lucky winner will receive the audiobook of They Met in a Tavern for free. All you have to do to enter is subscribe to our podcast, YouTube channel, or newsletter, and enter a quick survey, all of which are linked in our bio. Each new subscription is one entry. That's it. It's that easy. Soon, you could have your favorite CamCat audiobook in your ears and at your fingertips. So make sure you enter for your chance to win this book to live in. Enjoy! Six, a deal. The half-orc was stronger than he looked, and considering what he looked like, that was saying something. Brass had tried to get up twice since being sat down in an office and told to wait. Both times, the half-orc sat him back down with arms like worked stone. Brass decided not to press his luck with a third attempt. 
the door to the office opened, and in came a person of androgynous features, short-cropped blonde hair and shrewd gray eyes. Their clothes looked like they were expensive at one point in time and were clearly not being worn to impress anyone. Simple in style, muted in color, but expertly tailored and made with imported material. As a side effect of his lifestyle, Brass was prone to forgetting a lot of faces. But never this one. And as soon as he realized who it was, his eyes lit up. And he forgot all about the mess he'd made. Vera, are you running the lilac now? Vera's lips pressed into a thin line, and their eyes narrowed as they slowly sat down across from Brass. For the last five years. For the second time that day, Brass was struck with the realization of just how long it had been since he'd seen most of his friends. It felt like just yesterday that Vera was an escort landing a new gig in the fancy hotel they'd once been kicked out of. Where did the time go? That aside, there was the concerning edge to Vera's voice, and Brass quickly realized this was not going to be a simple happy reunion. Still, he knew Vera. He could salvage this. That's great, really, congratulations. If anybody could take over this place, it would be you. Brass. Hmm? Shut up. Oh. Vera rubbed their temples while Brass checked on the half-orc again, just to see if he'd maybe wandered and created an opening. He hadn't. Do you have any idea how big of a mess you've made? Well, Vera held up a finger. No, this is the part where you listen. The half-orc standing next to Brass tightened his grip on his shoulder to emphasize the point. But it was overkill. Brass knew better than to go against Vera. The list of people on Vera's bad side who were still alive was a short one. Then again, it had been a few years. It could be blank by now. You killed two people in my hotel scared my staff half to death over it, and if the blood and bodies weren't enough, you brought the watch. They're poking around, asking questions, and throwing around words like interference of justice. The amount of glint I'm going to lose over this is obscene. How much can you lose dealing with the watch? Brass asked. After bribes, favors, and cleanup? Vera looked Brass over confirming a suspicion of theirs. More than you can afford. I feel offended. Don't play at dignity, Vera scolded. You haven't been flush in years. Well, Brass tried to think of the best way to downplay the fact that Vera was right. I mean, we all go through rough patches. But glint chasing's got glint right there in the name. Give me a few months. I can get you what you lost on this little incident, and then some. Just a few months, Vera asked, a mocking edge in their words. Two at the most, Brass said. He racked his brain to figure out how he was supposed to actually pull that off. You know, there's a shipping group in Sassel that's got a piracy problem. I can catch a boat that way, clean things up, and be back with the reward money before tax season. You're going to pay me back with a Castellan bounty? That a half dozen companies are probably already chasing? Well, when you put it like that, 
I can see the flaws in the idea, but the principle's not a bad one, Brass defended. I can find a gig somewhere and make you what you need in no time. But not now. Brass glanced around for a possible escape route. The half-orc loomed behind him, perfectly positioned between Brass and both the window and the door. No, not right now. But I promise you, let me go and you'll get your money. Vera leaned over the table, at once shocked and impressed that Brass would admit that he couldn't pay them back. Their jaw was slack, even as the corners of their mouth curled upward. Brass, when in all my life have I taken promises as payment? Once, right now, for an old friend. Vera blinked, stared, and then finally laughed so hard their eyes started to tear up. Avelina, spare your heart. <laughs> I forgot how much I liked you. Brass felt a wave of relief. Still got it. Kratz? They turned their attention to the half-orc. Don't kill him. Just break a few bones and take an arm. Maybe dump him out of church if you're not too tired afterward. Leave the face alone, though. Brass's smile dropped. Pardon? What can I say? Vera shrugged. I liked you more when you had money. Kratz lifted Brass out of his chair and began dragging him out of the room. Brass dug his heels in to pull back, but only succeeded in scuffing the carpet as he was dragged out. Vera, can't we talk about this? Nobody's going to hire a glint chaser without a company, Brass. Kratz reached the threshold of the office door, and Brass braced his legs against the doorframe to try and hold the half-orc back. It was undignified, but it bought him a few seconds while the hulk of a man debated whether or not to just break Brass's legs now. What if he was willing to work for free? Brass asked. That managed to catch Vera's attention, if only because it confused them. They snapped their fingers, and the half-orc stopped trying to drag Brass out. After a nod from Vera, Kratz released Brass, but still stood, ready to grab the glint chaser if he tried anything. What? Vera asked. I'm not going to pretend you're not right. It's hard to find good work as a solo act, Brass admitted. But you know me. You know what I'm good at and how good I am at it. There has got to be some problem that you have that you know I could fix. Whatever it is, I can take care of it, free of charge. That's the services of the best of the best. Immense market value for the low, low price of not having tall, gray, and handsome rip off my limbs. The best of the best. You have another way to describe the Starbreakers? I've heard a few choice ways over the years, Vera said. And you are not the Starbreakers. You're not even my favorite out of the five. I can... Wait. Brass paused. Which one of us was your favorite? The Cleric. Church? Vera shrugged. He's cute, and he doesn't cause trouble. Unlike someone I know. Brass waved a hand dismissively. As much as he wanted to object, he had more pressing concerns. 
like not getting his limbs broken. Fine, I'm one-fifth of the best. The point is, if I am good for nothing else, I'm good for two things. A good time and getting you out of a jam. Vera considered Brass, who answered with a knowing look. That look, like he knew exactly what they wanted and knew he could deliver it. They shook their head. Brass was troubled. Maybe even more now that he didn't have a company keeping him in check. But damn it if he couldn't sell himself. Well, now that you mention it, there is one other pain in my ass that you might be able to deal with. Brass eagerly took his seat again. Tell me all about it. 7. The Investigation The Crest Ward was where idle money lived in Olwyn. The people who called it home were well-off merchants, forgotten scions of old houses, and particularly fortunate retirees. They had plenty of money, but not much interest in doing anything with it, other than living comfortably and ensuring they wouldn't have to cross paths with any wayward newcomers from the north. The homes are all well-made, uniquely commissioned and constructed. Most had multiple floors, with the tallest building being the local church, which came in at a full four stories. Fences were common here, but to Armin's eyes they seemed more decorative than practical. It wouldn't have been hard to find the townhouse even without directions given to him by Harbin. All he had to do was follow the smell of smoke. When he got to the street corner, he found more or less the scene he'd expected. There was a space between two houses that was little more than a smoldering pile of ash and rubble encased in the charred remains of a wooden frame. Edges of wood here and there still glowed an angry orange. It looked like it had been on fire less than an hour ago. A few members of the watch were waiting at the wreckage, stationed to make sure nobody touched the place who wasn't supposed to. It was their best attempt at preserving evidence they couldn't move. Some of the watch shifted uncomfortably as Armin approached. He wasn't carrying any sort of weapon, but he was wearing a set of reinforced dark leathers, and walking armored in the city carried enough implication of trouble on its own. It's all right. He's with us. The watch visibly relaxed as Caitlin trotted over. Most of the watch were used to dealing with thieves, drunks, and the occasional murderer. Dealing with magic had them on edge. Harvin told me you might be coming, Caitlin said. Armin hadn't said yes to the job until this morning. He didn't know whether or not to be offended that Harbin had just assumed he'd say yes. Caitlin gestured to the ruins. Welcome to... This. I haven't really touched anything in there. Whole place is like an oven. Armin nodded. He'd come prepared for that. Without looking... Armin traced a quick pattern across the arcane glyphs that were etched into his armor's bracer. The glyphs lit up in response to his touch, creating a trail of light in sync with the path of his fingers until he finished the sequence, and the enchantment woven into his armor responded. The stitching and seams began to glow sky blue, and Armin felt a refreshing, cool sensation radiate from it. Instantly, the heat became more bearable. What was that? Caitlin asked. Fire-resistant enchantment. Ah, don't suppose you've got more of them? Just the one suit. Well, 
Caitlin looked around as if trying to spot some way for her or her team to be useful. Well, make sure nobody gets in your way, then. Hope you can figure this one out. Right. There was still some smoke curling off of the ruins in places, as he carefully stepped through the remains of a doorframe. It wasn't enough to be a real issue, but he still didn't want to breathe it in if he didn't have to. He fished into a pouch on his belt, producing a breathe-read pack from the drawer full of them in his basement. There was a small metal cylinder with a mouthpiece attached to the side that used extra-dimensional pockets of gas to let him breathe normally when that might otherwise be a problem. He'd made his first ones to explore a shipwreck ages ago. These days, he mostly used them as an alternative to properly ventilating his workshop. Breather in his mouth, Armin set to work. He counted three bodies half-buried in the charred remains of the house. Judging from bone structure, he made out one male and two females. Scraps of armor hung around the male's arms. A warped metal circlet had fused to the skull of one of the women. The other woman's skull had horns protruding from it. A hellborn. Between the unnaturally persistent fire and the hellborn, Harmon came up with his first theory to test. He reached into one of the pouches on his belt and pulled out a golden rod etched with a pattern of thorny vines and open eyes. At over a foot long, it had no business being able to fit in the fist-sized pouch on his belt. But that was the wonder of enchanted pocket space. The device was an old find, pulled from the tomb of a defunct order of knights dedicated to hunting demons. When activated, it emitted a glow that turned blood red in the presence of demons or their handiwork. Armin grabbed the rod in two hands and twisted until it clicked. Slowly, the rod began to give off a soft glow, but its color remained white. It's never demons, Armin mused, putting the rod away. Eliminating demonism left divinity or arcana. So, Armin pulled down his goggles over his head and tapped the side of the lenses. The world became bathed in orange, and Armin looked around for anything glowing white. Nothing did, which meant divine influence was out. He tapped the lenses again, changing everything from orange to blue, and suddenly the wreckage around him lit up. His clothes and armor were all glowing bright white under the filter, and the remains of the townhouse also gave off a faint white glow. We have a winner. Beyond the magic residue the fire had left behind, Armin caught sight of another, much brighter glowing shape on the floor of the house with the unmistakable outline of a trap door. Still looking directly at where they'd revealed the location of the trap door, Armin switched the goggles off and saw only a pile of ash and burnt wood. Buried. He immediately started sifting through the rubble, feeling the heat even through his enchanted gloves. Hot cinders and soot kicked up and into his face as he excavated, stinging his skin. Standing a safe distance from the smoke and heat, but still keeping an eye on things, Caitlin raised an eyebrow. Got some? she asked. Armin briefly took the rebreather out of his mouth to speak. After breathing clean air from it for so long, the air of the wreckage tasted especially acrid. Trap door. A basement, maybe. He finished clearing the debris to reveal a simple metal trap door with a ring handle. He tugged, but the door didn't budge. For a second, he thought it was locked. 
Then he remembered he'd been able to see it with his goggles. Armin had over a dozen enchantments prepared, some to protect him, some to provide him information, and all of them handcrafted and woven into the armor by him. There was no set like it in all of Corsar, maybe in all the world. And that was because there was no one else in Corsar who knew how to enchant armor. He traced a new pattern on his bracer, triggering its identification spell. A wizard might spend weeks learning to cast a spell from memory. Armin built it into his glove and then let it do the work when he needed it. The differences were lost on most people, even ones like Caitlin, who had seen him and other mages in action. To them, magic was magic. As long as hands were waved and glowing lights appeared, Armin was as much a mage as someone from the academy. Strands of light extended from the fingertips of Armin's gloves, tracing across the trapdoor in a grid pattern and occasionally glowing even brighter as they passed over the anchor points of the door's magic. When the identification spell finished its work, the strands vanished, and glowing text written in Arcania materialized in the air in front of him, telling him everything it had learned. There was an arcane seal placed on the trap door, identical to the one Armin had on his house. At the touch of the right person, the seal would suspend itself and allow the door to be opened. To anyone else, it was almost impossible to budge. Since he didn't bring any explosives, he was going to have to be gentler about this. Armin reached into his belt again, this time drawing out three small wooden counters about the size of checkers pieces, dispelling discs, enough to break most ongoing spells entirely and suppress more permanent magics for a short period of time. He placed them in a triangle, stepped back, and traced a corresponding pattern on his bracer. With a bright flash and a sound like cymbals crashing, three discs dissolved into a shower of crimson embers. When Armin tried the door again, it opened, revealing a steep stairwell that led into a stone corridor. Underneath his goggles, the door still glowed, but much more faintly now that the enchantment was broken. He had about five minutes before the seal reactivated. I'll be right back. The corridor was pitch black, so Armin produced a lightstone from his belt. In the old world, lightstone had been mined and used to create magical light sources of all kinds. Lightstone was still used now, but outside of recycling it from old world ruins, nobody knew where to find more of it. The stone responded to Armin's mental command, casting white light into the basement. The far end of the hall opened up into a massive training room, where Armin noted the presence of practice dummies and targets, weights, wooden training weapons, and a dirt fighting pit. There was one other room, which was smaller and packed with shelves of weathered books, jars containing scrap materials, and vials of just about every color of fluid. A desk was covered in papers and ink stains. An old workbench against one wall was covered in candles, scrawlings, burnt materials, and jars of glittering dust. To the right people, the contents of this room were worth the kind of money that changed lives. The fact that they were here, spread out and kept organized for use rather than packed away in preparation to be sold, gave Armin another piece of information to work with. He was in the home of a fellow arcane practitioner. Then he spotted it. The sparkling wand that told him exactly who had been living in this house and who'd owned it. 
Mounted above the doorway to the training room was a shining black and gold rotella shield engraved with the face of a dragon. This was the home of the Golden Shield, a freelance company employed by the Academy's Office of Requisitions to find and reclaim old world artifacts. They got the job four years ago, after the Academy put out the call for auditions, and they submitted the Shield of the Sun Dragon as theirs. They were good. Emphasis, it seemed, on were. For the first time in years, Armin regretted not being more connected to the local gossip. He didn't know how many members the shield had, or if any of their members matched the remains he'd found. They could all be dead, or there could be someone left alive who could tell him what happened. As he got closer to the shield above the door to see if it was the real thing, his foot kicked something in the dark. Metal scratched against stone, as whatever it was clattered across the floor. At first glance, it looked like a helmet whose faceplate mimicked the look of a human face. But the jaw was hinged, and while the eyes were dark, the helmet wasn't hollow. It was the head of an autostruct. Armin didn't know much about autostructs. It was sentient beings of metal, wood, and magic, created rather than born. Allegedly, they ran off the same design behind arcane intelligences but Armin had seen one in person only once, and it had tried to kill him before he could get the chance to study it. He crouched down, poking the head with a finger. For a moment, there was no response, and Armin wondered if the magic he was reading was just residual. Then, just as the disappointment was beginning to set in, the head's eyes lit up like two glowing golden orbs, and Armin nearly fell backward. Halt! The head spoke with a hollow, tinny voice. Metal shutters closed and opened over its glowing eyes, and Armin's curiosity immediately fired up. It blinked. Why did a metal construct with arcane eyes need to blink? State your name and intent, or I will be forced to deploy countermeasures. Armin was almost too entranced by the thing to pay attention to what it was saying. As the head spoke, the movements of its jaw made it rock from side to side on the floor, threatening to topple its balance. Easy, Armin urged, putting his hands up to show he was unarmed. My name is Armin. I'm investigating what happened to this place for the Castellan. There was a pause from the autostruct and a soft whirring sound from its temples. You do not appear to be lying. I'm not. Armin! Caitlin's voice just made its way down to the basement. You okay down there? Yeah, he shouted back up the stairs. I found something. No sooner had the words left his mouth than Armin watched the basement trapdoor pull itself shut, followed by a subtle flash of light along its edges that signaled the seal reactivating. The color drained from Armin's face as he stared at the trapdoor. After trying to will the door back open with sheer dread didn't work, he scrambled up the stairs and shoved at the trapdoor with everything he had, but it didn't budge, and he was out of dispel discs. Fishing line, Armin almost cursed as he realized his own stupidity. He should have just propped the door open. He rammed the door again in frustration, only to lose his footing on the steep stairs and tumble backward, and the door still didn't even so much as shift. 
Aside from some bruises, the only thing injured was his pride. But he was trapped. Armin let out a long sigh as he stood up, more annoyed with himself than anything. This was going to complicate things. He could call for help, but the only ones around who might hear were Caitlin and the other watch members, and they couldn't open the seal on the door. Not without siege equipment, anyway. The tiny click of the Autostruck's metal eyelids reminded Armin of the construct's presence. It was staring at him. Do you have something to say? he asked. What is the current status of the Golden Shield? Armin thought back to the three blackened bodies in the mess above ground and weighed the odds going off of everything he knew. He sighed. Probably dead. The head blinked. For a moment, it just stared. Not even at Armin. It just stared. It almost looked sad. That is counterproductive, it eventually said. Armin briefly forgot he was trapped in the basement, his curiosity overtaking his thoughts. Who are you? I am Gamma, Autostruct Chronicler for the Academy, member of the Golden Shield. Armin thought he detected a hint of pride in the Autostruct's monotone. Thoughts of his current predicament were pushed to the back of his mind as he began to appreciate the unique opportunity in front of him. This wasn't just an Autostruct to study. The construct had been a member of the Golden Shield. He might have an eyewitness on his hands. What happened here? Unknown, the head replied. I have been separated from the Golden Shield and rendered inactive for an unknown period of time. Okay. What's the last thing you remember? I formulated an answer to your question. What is the last thing that you remember? It was Armin's turn to blink. He wondered if all autostructs were like this, or if this was just the damage and decapitation at work. No, I mean, what's the last thing you remember from before you reactivated? There was an explosion. I... Armin stopped himself. If you ask bad questions, you get bad answers. What caused the explosion? I am not permitted to answer. Armin folded his arms. Why not? Parameter three. Preserve the secrets of the Academy. Now they were getting somewhere. For sentence meant to hide information? It told him a lot. What are your parameters? Parameter one. Complete the mission, the head stated. Parameter two. Protect the golden shield. Parameter three. Preserve the secrets of the Academy. Parameter 4. Comply with local laws. Parameter 5. It kept going, listing off rules, mandates, and exceptions. The longer it went on, the greater Armin's understanding grew. Its rules all boiled down to, essentially, causing as little trouble as possible while completing its assignments and not betraying the Academy. Armin always wondered how an institution as rigid as the Academy would ever be okay with employing glint chasers. Having unquestionably loyal eyes and ears in the company they employed was exactly the sort of thing they would do. It made him wonder how the Golden Shield felt about the Autostruct. 
his old company wouldn't have stood for it. Well, Brass might have tried to fuck it. Regardless, he knew what to say now. Tell me everything you can about the immediate circumstances that led to the explosion that rendered you inactive. The autostruct blinked. You're required to comply with local laws, Armin reminded it. I'm working on behalf of the Castellan. That makes me auxiliary law enforcement. You have to answer. After a final moment of hesitation, the autostruct's forehead split open, revealing a shimmering blue lens that flickered to life. 8. The Golden Shield A robin flew into the open window of the sitting room in the Golden Shield's townhouse, coming to rest on the back of a chair. It gave a friendly chirp to the only other creature in the room, Gamma. The autostruct stood a full seven feet tall, with broad shoulders and a body of polished dark wood and silver metals. He examined the bird. It was energetic, and seemed to be eyeing him with familiarity. In an instant, the robin's eyes bulged and changed colors. Its chest swelled as its feathers retreated and shrank. Its wings stretched out and then grew in size. In a moment, the robin was gone, replaced by a raven-haired young woman with bronze-toned skin. She was dressed in a sleeveless blue tunic decorated with druidic symbols. A silver circlet with small ornamental antlers held her hair back. The shapeshifter plopped into the chair with a relaxed sigh. Hey, Gamma, Antlers said. Have you seen King and Showboat? I've been looking for them all morning. They went to the basement for training, Gamma explained. They requested privacy. Oh, Antlers said, before fully processing the words. Privacy meant something very specific in the Golden Shield. Oh! Antlers kept her curiosity constrained for all of five seconds. How long have they been down there? Two hours, thirty-five minutes, six seconds. Antlers marveled at the time, wondering how much of it had been spent actually training and how much had been devoted to privacy. The sound of the basement door opening and closing came from downstairs. Showboat wandered into the sitting room. The Golden Shield's resident scholar had snow-white skin, silver hair, and ram-like horns that started in her forehead and curled back and around the sides of her head. Her eyes were solid red without pupils or irises. She wore a black cape and vest over a simple white shirt, pants, and traveler's boots. A saint's pendant hung around her neck. Hellborn were rare as a rule. It was even rarer to find one with any sort of connection to the church. Gamma noted a slight flush of pink in Showboat's normally white face, a sign of recent physical exertion. How was training? Antlers asked. Training was fine, Showboat responded. Is the relic secured for transport? It is, Gamma answered. He gestured to the room's central table, where a closed carrying case that contained the relic in question rested. Meanwhile, Antlers was not one to be distracted so easily. She was prepared to press the previous conversation, when a movement near the window drew her attention. What was that? What was what? Showboat asked. Antlers approached the window. Curious, 
She leaned out of it, looking for what had caught her eye. Too late. She saw a man scaling the side of the townhouse. Before she could call out a warning to her friends, the man reached up, grabbed her head, and yanked it down onto the windowsill. In one motion, the man used antlers as leverage and pulled himself into the sitting room before shoving her aside, dazed and bleeding from the forehead. He had two short curved blades already drawn. The man was lithe, a mask obscuring the lower half of his face. Most of what he wore consisted of simple traveler's clothes, but he carried an array of weapons on his person, and his arms sported light armor. Gamma took in Antlers' sudden injury, the intruder's posture, and his array of blades, and determined him to be a threat. Showboat would make a similar assessment in a moment, but she processed information more slowly than Gamma, and the intruder was faster than she was. A throwing blade struck Showboat in the abdomen. The point of entry and disruption in breathing indicated her lung had been punctured. The injury would impair, if not eliminate, her ability to use prayers, and Antlers was still recovering. For the time being, Gamma was alone. Gamma's forearm split down its length to allow a two-pronged metal wand to extend out from it. Frost formed along the length of the prongs before a beam of bright blue energy shot forward, striking the intruder in the side. It didn't incapacitate the intruder, but it slowed his movements and bought the others precious time. Before Gamma could fire again, a second masked figure somersaulted into the sitting room from the window. Physical features indicated a woman, and her drawn daggers indicated another threat. New calculations had to be made. A single intruder was one matter, but the second introduced an uncertainty in the enemy's number. Gamma couldn't cover both intruders and the room's points of entry. Fortunately, Antlers finally recovered enough to join the fray. Leaping forward, her muscles rippled as her face flattened and whiskers protruded from her cheeks. A moment later, Antlers was gone, replaced by a mountain lion that pounced at the intruders. What followed was a tight melee, as Antlers in her lioness form darted between the intruders, claws crossing with their blades as Gamma did his best to provide covering fire. Showboat finally managed to gasp out the words of a prayer, healing her injury. But no sooner had she done so when the male intruder winded her again, with a quick, precise strike to her stomach. Antlers turned and tried to pounce on him, but the female intruder lunged for her. When Gamma fired, throwing blades answered his shots. Every move made by one side was countered by the other. Even with the shield's numbers advantage, the intruders were simply too fast to overwhelm. As Antlers was forced back by the woman, Gamma surged forward, grabbed the assailant by the back of her neck, and slammed her bodily into the table. The woman noiselessly took the impact before twisting in Gamma's grip and attempting to lock his arm in a grapple. It was a skillful attempt, but the raw strength of Gamma's artificial form overpowered it, leaving the woman yanking in vain. That was when she switched tactics, released her hold, and, before Gamma's eyes, blinked out of existence. In the same instant, Gamma registered a blade being driven through the back of his neck. He turned around just in time for the woman, who had somehow appeared behind him, to drive her other dagger through the front of his neck. Gamma had countermeasures he could have deployed, but his mind remained fixated on how she had managed to disappear. He took only a fraction of a second to process the technique, 
ruling out invisibility and illusion, before settling on some form of short-range teleportation. That fraction of a second was all the woman needed. Gripping her daggers, the woman pulled and twisted in one motion, neatly separating Gamma's head from his body. Because everything that sustained his consciousness was built into his head, this did not kill Gamma, but it robbed him of his body and effectively removed him from the battle as his head rolled across the floor. Unable to assist, he could only watch as Antlers and Showboat fought a losing battle for their lives. Antlers's fur was matted with her blood, while Showboat struggled to stand. Her attempts to heal them were stopped as, midway through a prayer, the female intruder covered her mouth and ice spread across the scholar's face. All that came through the ice were Showboat's muffled screams before a knife was driven into her back. Antlers roared, fighting as only a cornered animal could, but she was not enough. With every failed pounce, the intruders added to her wounds. The sitting room doors burst open as King stormed in, only partially armored, but with a sword in hand. His umber-brown face was contorted into a look of rage that only intensified when he saw Showboat lying bleeding on the floor, and he lunged. Two against one, King dueled with the intruders in a whirlwind of steel and held his own against both opponents. Antlers found an opening in the melee and finally landed on one of the intruders, pinning them to the floor as they tried desperately to hold back her fangs. King forced the other back toward the table, trying to pin them down before taking a heavy downward swing. His opponent sidestepped the blow, and King's sword instead cleaved straight through the carrying case on the table that contained the relic. Bright red light poured out from the case. All heads turned to look at it. For a moment, the case glowed bright orange. Then fire engulfed them all. All vision became obscured and Gamma felt himself lifted up and launched from the room by the shockwave as an impact occurred, then another. At some point, as the entire house was engulfed in a roaring conflagration, Gamma felt himself tumble down the stairs into the basement, and everything went black. 9. Phoenix Armin stroked his chin as the imagery from Gamma's projector ceased. The lens retreated back into his forehead, clicking shut. The members of the Golden Shield matched the description of the bodies he'd found, but that meant the bodies of both of the assassins were missing. He could understand the watch missing two bodies. The heat of the wreckage would have made it impossible for them to do a thorough search. But he had protection. He'd poured through the debris while trying to figure out the layout of the place. He occasionally missed things, but never something that obvious. File it under questions for later. What was the artifact in the case? Armin asked. I am not permitted to say. Of course not. He didn't necessarily need Gamma to answer. Just knowing that it existed and that it caused the explosion was plenty of information he was pretty sure it was already enough to satisfy Harbin. But if he was lucky, he might find some trace of it left behind. He just had to open the seal and get back upstairs to look. But the trap door would only open for members of the Golden Shield. 
Hey, Gamma, I need another favor. Do you have further questions? Not exactly. Armin picked the construct's head up off of the floor and climbed the stairs to the sealed trap door. He pressed Gamma's head to the door and smirked when he felt the click of the seal releasing. As I understand the concepts, you have violated my dignity and autonomy, Gamma complained. I had to get out somehow. With Gamma tucked under his arm, Armin returned to the world above. This time, he propped the trapdoor open with a burnt hunk of wood. Investigating the wreckage and questioning Gamma had taken nearly an hour. The late afternoon sky had given way to the first stars of dusk, leaving the whole place cast in its own smoldering glow. Is this all that is left? Armin was caught off guard by the question from Gamma. He delivered it in the same monotone he did everything, and his face betrayed no emotion. Armin wondered if the construct could feel. What was it thinking, seeing its company dead and their home in cinders? Uh, he tried to think of a gentler answer and came up with nothing. Yeah. The construct remained silent. I'm sorry. You do not shoulder fault for these circumstances, Gamma said. Armin struggled to explain. I mean, I'm sad that this happened to you. And I, uh, sympathize. I am an autostruct, Gamma replied. Armin tried to think of something else to say, but again didn't come up with anything worth saying. You are a freelancer, Gamma stated, breaking the silence and pulling Armin from his thoughts. What? You are conducting an investigation on behalf of the Castellan, but lack a formal watchman's uniform or a knight's heraldry, indicating your services were requested as a supplement to the Castellan's needs. Freelancers routinely respond to requests for aid made by local governance, Gamma observed. Your ability to circumvent the door seal to enter the basement, as well as your interest in the relic and ability to remain in an environment of hazardous temperatures, indicate both familiarity with and access to magical equipment. Such knowledge and access is in short supply, constrained primarily to students and faculty of the Academy, Knights of the Crown, and freelancers. You bear no royal seal and you do not work for the Academy. I used to be a freelancer, Armin said. I stopped. Was your company also killed? Not exactly, Armin said. This time it was the sound of footsteps that pulled him back to reality. Caitlin was making her way through the wreckage, already sweating profusely. Hey, she yelled. Where have you been? Armin didn't look her in the eye. I... Got stuck downstairs. What? It's not important. Isn't this whole place too hot for you? Caitlin panted. Just about. But I left to take a piss, and when I came back, the rest of the detail was gone. Oh, did you see where they went? The blank look on Armin's face answered a question. Of course you didn't. Avalina's ass. Where did they go? Behind them, two young men approached. They weren't watch members, but both of them were armed and armored. 
One wore a chain shirt over a gamison and casually carried a warhammer at his side. The other had a pair of clubs in his hand with a long chain connecting them. The men looked to be in their early twenties at most. When they were still some distance away, the one with the hammer greeted them. Evening. Which one of you is Phoenix? Technically me, Harmon answered. I didn't expect Harbin to send anybody else. The two exchanged glances. Caitlin figured out what was going on before Armin did and reached for her sword. Gamma clued him in. Armin, eye movement patterns and body language indicate violent intentions and additional assailants positioned at unknown vantage points. Guilty as charged, the man with the hammer said. As both men came toward them, instincts Armin forgot he had came crashing back. His body felt lighter. His heart raced. Every nerve in his body hummed, ready to fire. His thoughts, always so scattered between what he was doing, ideas for inventions, and his family, now worked in unison to give his surroundings clarity. There were no distractions, no uncertainties, just information and a single goal to achieve. Survival. Armin, the family man, was gone. In his place, stood the freelancer, Phoenix. Reflexively, he shifted his weight to his back foot and reached to where his wand should have been on his belt, only to grope empty air. He hadn't carried it since he'd retired, and he'd packed for an investigation, not a fight. No wand was a significant handicap. Caitlin was armed and ready, but she was already looking exhausted from the heat. The longer she stayed, the more likely she was to become a liability. Better get her clear, then let her run or call for backup. There were more opponents nearby, if Gamma was on the money. Maybe they weren't protected from the heat. Maybe they were. Easier and safer to assume the worst. The two he could see were young and hungry, but inexperienced. He'd fought their kind. Been their kind. The one with the chain let one of the two clubs drop and dragged it along the ground. They're here for me, Phoenix said to Caitlin. Get out of here. Better listen to him, the one with the hammer said, before you end up like your friends. The words drew their attention to the traces of blood on the men's weapons, and Caitlin's face hardened. Phoenix saw a way to save her. There are members of the Watch bleeding in the street right now. They need you more than I do. Now go. It was a cheap shot. But if Caitlin thought there was a chance any of the watch were still breathing, she would leave Phoenix to help him. Sure enough, after staring at him and weighing her options, Caitlin backed away, keeping her eyes trained on the men as she retreated. Phoenix stepped in front of her to make sure the men didn't pursue, but they only seemed interested in him. He was unarmed, but he had his belt. Nothing in it was made to be used in a fight but that wasn't anything his imagination couldn't solve. He had his armor, which would buy time. He had a few devices he'd figured would have been useful. And he had a hunk of sentient metal tucked under his arm. It would have to be enough. Phoenix dropped Gamma, took a step back, and punted the construct into the man with the hammer. Then he tried to run. Unfortunately, the man with the chain reacted faster, swinging his weapon like a whip. The weapon wrapped around Phoenix's neck before he could react. 
an electric shock coursed down the chain, into his neck, and through his body. Every muscle tensed and his body shuddered. The man yanked on the chain, pulling it taut and bringing Phoenix to his knees. Barely able to move, Phoenix just managed to trace a pattern on his bracer. The light emanating from the seams in his armor changed from light blue to bright yellow. Instantly, the pain from the chain diminished to an uncomfortable sensation of pins and needles, and the air became swelteringly hot. Phoenix pulled the chain off his neck. The man holding the other end yanked again, trying to pull it from his grasp, but Phoenix held on. The man with the hammer charged in, and Phoenix drove the club end of the chain into the man's stomach. The man jerked back from the shock, and Phoenix used the opportunity to run. He spotted Gamma's head lying ahead of him and scooped it up off the ground. Immediately, he regretted it. Gamma's metal head had gotten extremely hot after lying in the still-smoldering wreck of the townhouse, and with his armor no longer set to resist heat, Phoenix's hands were burned. He dropped Gamma again, and resorted to kicking him ahead of him as they escaped. Sorry about this, Phoenix yelled to the construct. Behind you, Gamma called out as he rolled down the street. Phoenix whirled around in time to see a hammer crashing down on him. He brought his arms up to protect his head and turned away, taking the hit on his shoulder. He felt something pop. Phoenix staggered, taking another blow to his ribs as he did. Without the enchanted armor, his ribs would have broken. Even with it, he couldn't take too many more of those before something important gave. He mentally rummaged through his equipment until he thought of something he could use. He reached into a pouch on his belt and pulled out a pair of silver wristbands. Before his opponent could wind up for another swing with his hammer, Phoenix rushed in close. The man retreated into a defensive stance, one Phoenix would have had no chance of getting through to land a hit. But he wasn't trying to hit the man. Instead, he touched one of the wristbands to the man's raised arm, letting it wrap around his wrist. As soon as the first band was secure, Phoenix tossed the other onto the man's ankle. A deep hum came from the two bands, and with overwhelming force, they pulled themselves toward each other. The man went from standing tall to collapsed onto the floor, his right wrist pinned to his left ankle. Phoenix didn't have time to rest, as the man with the chain came in swinging. Every hit left him feeling like parts of his body were falling asleep, but he ignored it and kept running. A loud clink sounded off to his right, and Phoenix spotted a crossbow bolt embedded in a house's stone fence. Gamma was right about there being more than just the two. An archer drawing a bead on him complicated things. It was after sundown. There were no crowds to get lost in. He would have hopped fences, but he doubted he could make it with the pain in his shoulder. Losing his attackers was rapidly becoming less and less of an option. He had to take them out. Still running, Phoenix dug his rebreather out of his pocket. There were a lot of different gases and liquids needed to make it function, and some of them were flammable. Phoenix clutched the rebreather in his mouth and pulled an engraving tool from his belt. Using the tool like a pick, he punctured the side of the rebreather. A sharp hiss tore through the air as a jet of liquid and gas shot from it. Phoenix jerked to a stop and turned to aim the jet at his assailant. Gas streaming from the rebreather, he pulled his endless match from his belt. Closing his eyes, he lit the match and held it up to the puncture. The jet of gas turned into a line of flames that poured over the man with the chain. He cried out in pain, 
dropping mid-stride as the fire washed over him. Phoenix kept the flames on him for a second longer. Then he spat the rebreather out with as much force as he could before the pressure of the escaping gases waned and the flames caused the whole thing to explode in his mouth. The man with the chain was in agony, screaming and disoriented, but not down. Gritting his teeth, Phoenix charged the man while he was still on the ground and kicked him in the head as hard as he could. The man crumpled. Phoenix kicked him again for good measure. Phoenix was more winded from the sprint than he'd expected. He was out of shape. His shoulder felt dislocated. After taking a second to survey his surroundings, he spotted a building corner that would serve his purpose. He took a second to brace himself and slammed his shoulder to try to knock it back into place. It did not work. Pain shot through his shoulder, and before he could even finish screaming, more pain shot up from his thigh. He stared down, seeing a crossbow bolt jutting out of his leg. It hadn't gone deep, but it managed to punch through with the armor. He was tired, bleeding from his head, his lip, and now his leg. Several parts of his body felt numb. Before he could think of his next move, another bolt struck him in the chest. The armor held this time, but the force of the impact overcame his already compromised balance and knocked him onto his back. Lying on the ground, he made eye contact with Gamma, who had rolled to a stop in the middle of the street not far from him. Bolts are originating from the rooftop due west of our position, Gamma warned. Previous bolts loosed indicate only one archer. Phoenix looked in the direction Gamma indicated and finally managed to spot the archer, silhouetted on a rooftop against the backdrop of the dusky sky, loading their crossbow. Knowing where the shots were coming from helped. Growling as the muscles in his injured leg protested, Phoenix stood, scooped up Gamma, and hobbled for cover. He rounded a corner and pressed himself flat against the wall just as a crossbow bolt whizzed through the space his head had occupied a second earlier. He choked down the knot of panic that formed in his throat as he stared at the bolt, lodged in a nearby wall. There wasn't time to think about how close that had been. He'd broken his line of sight. That was good. That meant he was almost clear. He plotted out a path through the streets of the Crest Ward, careful to keep buildings between him and where he estimated the archer's position was. He had to account for the fact that they would be moving, trying to get an angle, but he could work that out in his head as he ran. He made it to a thoroughfare that, during the day, would have been packed with people. In the evening, there was still one building that cast a bright glow from its windows. The sounds of drinks and conversations filtered out from its partially open door. A tavern a place full of witnesses, and maybe even off-duty watch members. He would be safe from his pursuers, whoever they were, at least long enough for him to catch his breath and maybe try to do something about his shoulder. Don't move. Phoenix complied with the woman's voice, which came from behind him. The voice was laced with aggression, impatience, and the unmistakable air of victory. He didn't turn around but he could imagine the crossbow pointed at his back right now. He may have overestimated his ability to predict his enemy's movements. His fingers stung from burns. The numbness from the electric club had spread to all the wrong places. The pain everywhere else was getting harder to ignore. But he wasn't out of tricks just yet. 
The archer had made the mistake of getting too close. Drop the head and put your hands in the air. Phoenix complied with the first half, letting Gamma hit the ground again with a clank. At the same time, he pulled his lightstone from his belt, transferred it to his left hand, and raised his one good arm into the air. Can't really get the other one up, Phoenix said. Your buddy did a number on my shoulder. I don't care, came the terse retort. Both hands behind your head, now. Phoenix let out an overly dramatic sigh and made a big show of slowly lowering his one good arm down, as if preparing to forcibly raise his bad arm. All right, he said. He stared down at the crossbow bolt in his thigh. This was gonna hurt. Both hands. In one motion, Phoenix yanked the crossbow bolt from his leg and stabbed it into the lightstone, shattering it like glass. At the same time, he squeezed his eyes shut. As it broke, the stone let out a dazzling flash that Phoenix's body did little to block. Behind him, the woman cursed as she was blinded. Phoenix turned on his heel, took two steps toward the woman, and stabbed her in the stomach with her own bolt. She gasped, staring at him as her vision slowly returned to her. There was shock and pain in her eyes. Phoenix ignored it, twisted the bolt, and stabbed again, higher this time. The woman dropped to the ground. Phoenix heard voices coming from the tavern. What was that? It came from outside. Who's that? The saints, he killed her. Someone get the watch. Armin let out an exhausted sigh. He dropped the crossbow bolt and got down on his knees. He placed the hand he could still raise on his head. In a few seconds, people had swarmed him. With the fight over, he felt suddenly heavier slower and tired. He wondered if Caitlin was okay, if she'd found any members of the watch. He wondered how long this mess was going to keep him from getting home, if Elizabeth was all right, who these people were, why they'd attacked, if there were more. And as more of the watch arrived to haul him to the nearest jail, one thought loomed in his mind above everything else. <laughs> Harbin is going to love this. One company dead, two more glint chasers attacked, and no answers? If Phoenix has any hope of untangling this mess before anyone else is killed, he's going to need some help. But from whom? Tune in to the next episode to see what familiar faces, if any, Phoenix can rally for his mission. So, don't forget to subscribe to CamCat Unwrapped. Tune in to hear all our audiobooks as we release them right here on CamCat Unwrapped as serialized podcasts. The first two episodes of every book can always be found here, but subsequent episodes will be available for free listening only for a short time after their release. After that, they'll be gone. But don't worry, the audiobooks are available for purchase on Audible and other major audio retailers. If you don't want to miss a beat, Listen now on the audiobook platform of your choice.
All our books are also available in print and ebook formats on camcatbooks.com or wherever books are sold. Before you go, please take a moment to leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform. Thank you. Camcat Unwrapped also offers other Camcat books as podcasts. Also, you can check out our interviews with authors, editors, and other bookworms, and our background episodes, where we unwrap exclusive content relating to our books. Tune in again to Camcat Unwrapped, because Camcat Unwrapped is where book lovers meet.